This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, today we have Dr. Stephen J. Buchanan, MD, co-founder and chief medical officer of Iris Healthcare, and we're talking about achieving the triple lane with advanced care planning. Dr. Stephen Buchanan, this is someone who is a former ACO, CEO of Ascension's Health Texas ACO. He's an entrepreneur, co-founder of Iris Healthcare. He's providing disease-specific advanced care planning to ACOs all over the country. He's someone that has experience working on the health insurance side as well. He's been the CMO for health insurance, JV with Cigna and Ascension Health. He lives in Austin, Texas, but he's lived all over. He led palliative care at University of Utah. He's practiced medicine in Florida. And this is someone, Daniel, that I'm really excited to have a conversation with today. I, I, I think I'm gonna learn a whole lot about palliative care and advanced care planning. Eric, definitely. This is, is such a great conversation. And and Dr. Buchanan comes with, as you've described, a wealth of knowledge. And I'm excited for our listeners to hear him discuss the impact that advanced care planning can have on the costs for our system, on outcomes for our patients, and as well on the patient experience. I think that's really what it all comes down to. And, and just the fact that these guys have such impressive results with their patients and with their patient satisfaction. And it just speaks a lot to me about the knowledge that he has to share and that our listeners will gain from this. This is our third episode around palliative care. And this one focuses a little more on advanced care planning, but such an important topic with a lot of new insights. Well, Daniel, it's all about that triple aim, lower per capita cost, improved patient experience and better outcomes. And I'm convinced that with advanced care planning, that can be achievable. So let's go ahead and talk to Dr. Stephen Buchanan in this Race to Value. Dr. Stephen Buchanan, welcome to Race to Value. Thanks. It's great to be here, guys. Very excited. I wish we were doing this interview in person, man. I always love, Stephen, to check out what clothes you're wearing. You have such great fashion sense, and I have to say I'm envious. Well, it's uh, it, you, can, you can be assured that it will never match and that there will be too many patterns, but lots of fun colors, and my patients always seem to enjoy what I'm wearing. Love it. So, Dr. Buchanan, we are in this race to make value-based care work in our country. And other than being an international man of style, you are one of the leading experts in palliative care in our country. I wanted to have you on the show this week to talk about the role that advanced care planning plays in health value. However, before doing that, I think it would be important for our listeners to first understand how you got into palliative care in the first place. And you're journey in health value is one that is heartfelt and deeply personal as it is associated with the personal tragedy that you had to deal with in young adulthood. As a child, you were raised by your grandparents and they provided you with the inspiration, love and dedication to make you the man you are today. You experienced adversity early on 
and you decided that you wanted to become a doctor because providing healing to others could actually provide you the healing that you needed in your own life. And your grandparents supported that dream, and they supported you through medical school and in your life. They were everything to you, and you owe them so much. So you end up finishing medical school, and as I understand, you were the first in your family that finished college, let alone become a doctor, and you achieved this dream of practicing medicine, and you made your grandparents proud, and then your grandmother is diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, and your grandfather is diagnosed with dementia, and they're both experiencing serious illness, and you found that medical school has not prepared you to adequately guide them through this. In a time of formidable distress and critical need for two of the people you love most in this world, your medical degree made you entirely inept to help them. As I understand this life experience and your failure as a physician to provide them with the help they needed during this serious illness made you question some things about the medical profession. And as a result, you ultimately ended up changing specialties and became a palliative care physician. So can you share with our listeners what you recognized in this deeply personal moment that made you aware that Western medicine, based on a reductionist approach to the body and disease, is somehow deficient in providing patient-centered care at times for patients and families dealing with serious illness? And how can advanced care planning improve the lives of patients and families suffering from long-term illness and help them deal with the treatment of physical problems like pain and emotional distress? Thank you for that introduction. Well said about my grandparents. They remain, they were my childhood heroes. They are my adulthood heroes. And everything I do, I, I do with them in mind. So in terms of what the, the family goes through, and I'll, I'll start with the personal stuff and, and expand this into what I think most people go through and what the, what the data says. We are a country where if you are, you have an infection, uh, is we're dealing with now, or you have a trauma, it is the greatest place to live. And in the past, not too long ago, that's what most people passed away from. And we are in the era of antibiotics and airbags, where we are experts at, at treating these things that can come on in a sudden and devastating way. But that is not what most American adults are, are going to, to die from, trauma or, or infections. Around 85% of us are going to have some type of serious illness. And so when I say serious illness, just to sort of level set to begin with, what I'm talking about is an illness that's going to progress over time and eventually take your life. It may not be over a period of months or even years, it may be many years, but it, they're things that we generally do not have a cure for. And so we're talking about COPD and dementia and late stage malignancies and, and CHF and so forth. These illnesses that we are all facing, it is hard to find an adult in the US that doesn't have a friend or a family member that, that's afflicted with these. We are not, as a society, really well prepared to take care of these folks. If I think back to what my grandfather went through, he never wanted to be in a facility, yet he spent several of his last years in a facility. And there was a, a good deal of family conflict over that. But I would say that my grandfather had his life prolonged in a way that he would not have found acceptable under circumstances that he would not find acceptable. And all of this, as I was practicing in medicine and spending a lot more time in the ICU intubating people, and they were going through this, what struck me is it doesn't have to be this hard. It's hard. This is all really difficult stuff, but it doesn't have to be as hard. We had years of runway to make it so that his outcome would have been different. We could have talked to him and the rest of the family about this before he had dementia. We could have talked to him about this during the early phases where we could really still get his input. These issues around what to do with him as things became more severe were never addressed. And I raised my hand there first. I am the most guilty being his grandson and a physician at the time 
But it wasn't addressed by me. It wasn't addressed by other members of the family. It wasn't addressed by his primary care doctor or his neurologist. And we had years of time to prepare for this. And ultimately, I felt like all of us, again, with my hand raised the highest, did him a disservice. And we didn't agree on what we should do or not do during those last few years of life. And so I think that first and foremost, it is just really incumbent upon us to get people better prepared for what they're going to be facing. When almost 85% of us are going to be facing these illnesses and healthcare literacy scores are so low, something in my mind is, is clearly wrong. When we talk about healthcare literacy scores for people with serious illness, they're embarrassingly low in the United States. If you look at studies, for instance, for people that have incurable cancer, somewhere between 70 and 80% of people believe they're going to be cured. It's not because they're thinking about going to Harry Potter's hospital and they're going to get magic as part of the treatment. It's because we don't sit down with them and talk them through what they can expect. I'm a practicing palliative medicine physician. I would say the vast majority of the patients that I wind up seeing don't understand the difference between treatment and cure. We throw these terms around all day long, but the layperson cannot distinguish between the two. And so when they hear treatment, they think everything's going to be okay, or there's going to be something that we can do to fix the problem. We may be able to halt the problem for some time or slow the progression of the problem. But for most of these illnesses, for the vast majority of people, these conditions are going to march on over time. And I really believe that it is our responsibility to talk to people about this. My grandmother was similarly unprepared. She was first diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, was treated for that. And in her mind, she felt like she was cured. And there was no way that this thing was coming back and then was diagnosed with, with metastatic breast cancer shortly after her, her treatment had, had wrapped. And I will tell you, I'm still embarrassed and ashamed to this day. I had a really hard time bringing that up to her. I had a difficult time saying to someone who I knew all my life that, hey, this, this illness doesn't necessarily unfold the way you're thinking. Shame on me, but she also had a slew of other physicians, including a PCP, a radiation oncologist, a surgical oncologist, and a medical oncologist, as well as some folks from other specialties that, that had to be pulled in. It was not communicated to her clearly across the board. And I just think back to how I felt, again, empowered by being a physician and still having a hard time getting my own family members to talk about this. And this is really where both palliative care and advanced care planning can come in and certainly not solve all these problems, but make them a lot better than the experience that most people have. Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much for that overview and explanation and for sharing your story with us. It's, it's definitely personal and and I can relate in many ways. I'm not a physician, but we've had some similar family experiences with wanting to be able to communicate to our loved ones and not feeling <laughs> enabled and empowered and not knowing what to say. I want to move into talking about palliative care as a force for value-based care. We know that evidence shows that palliative care improves health value. It, it leads to better management of pain and symptoms and improves both quality and length of life. And the preferences of patients and their families and, and caregivers are actually better accounted for. Their satisfaction is much higher. By realizing a level of patient-centeredness that can really only be attained through palliative care, healthcare utilization is reduced and outcomes are improved. And ACOs that have successfully implemented a palliative care program have demonstrated reductions in 30-day readmissions and avoidable hospital admissions and ED visits. And in January, CMS announced Brad Smith as the new CMMI director. And this is a guy who spent much of his career working in palliative care. And with Smith's arrival at CMMI and his deep foundation in palliative care, he suggests a refreshed focus at CMS on how advanced care planning and palliative care fit into the value-based care agenda. 
So in a recent interview, Brad Smith reflected on the importance and impact of palliative care in healthcare and said, quote, over the past five to 10 years, a number of studies have repeatedly demonstrated how advanced illness programs can consistently provide high patient and family satisfaction and decrease costs in the last year of life by 20 to 25%, end quote. At the program level, CMMI is currently launching four new programs, primary care first, seriously ill population option, direct contracting, kidney care choices, and the oncology care first models. Each of these models center around increasing quality of care for patients with a special focus on advanced illness care. As a palliative care physician with an entrepreneurial focus on value-based care, how do you see advanced care planning fitting into the success of these new APMs, as well as some of the more established ACOs that are managing risk within the MSSP? Yeah, so a couple of things here. Number one, I think that targeting needs to be upstream of what we typically see. So if you look at algorithms that ACOs or health plans have, there's been a great deal of focus on what happens in the last few months to year of life. So generally six to 12 months. And I would argue that you have to think well in advance of that. Why is that? Couple of reasons. Number one, the mindset of the patient when they are in crisis, that last year of life, is very different than when they are in what I would call steady state before those crises occur. If you think about someone with any of these illnesses that I had mentioned earlier, something that they have in common is utilization. And oftentimes that utilization is triggered by some type of symptom. That can be fever, shortness of breath, pain, et cetera. And it gets them in this loop of going to the emergency department, getting admitted to the ICU or other parts of the hospital, discharged to home with home health or put into the post-acute network, and then happens all over again. When we're doing that, we're really in that last year life, we're delivering a great deal of of care that I would say is is unwanted, unnecessary, or non-beneficial. And it is, it is not a good experience for the patient and, and their loved ones. You can imagine, though, because their symptom burden is rather high, that getting them to focus on goals, on what they want, is very difficult. They are distracted. One of the rules that I have in practice in our company, Iris, if I'm teaching medical students or residents, is that when people are in distress, that is not the time to talk about what's important to them or the goals or to have these hold these goals of care discussions. You can imagine that if you're lying there in bed and you're nauseated or you're short of breath or you're in pain, sitting down and having these time-intensive discussions is very difficult because you're so distracted by how you feel. And yet, What we've done, what many ACOs and health plans have done, is they've targeted people during this time thinking that, okay, we're going to intervene here and make a big difference. And it does make a difference. I would argue that if you move upstream to to a place where they're in steady state before these crises start, where they can process the information that you give them without being distracted by these symptoms, when they can talk to friends about it, when they can pray about it or think about it or journal about it, however they process this information, to do so in a more calm environment where they're not in nearly as much distress is going to be better for the patient and the family, and it's going to be better for the bottom line. That's one reason that I would target people further upstream. A a second reason that I think is important is that, you know, we've all looked at the last six months of life and you see sort of the hockey stick graph where cost of care goes up significantly. But if you look a little further, what you see is that that non-beneficial care starts to creep in in advance of those six months. So it's really last 12 to 15 months of life. So I think that targeting needs to be reconsidered if we want this to achieve its maximal potential. 
So as you had mentioned, Dan, there are plenty of studies showing benefit there. And I, I wouldn't stop during this last six or 12 months of life with these interventions, but I would move them upstream. Then in terms of being able to deliver this and what might this look like, I have been a believer from the beginning, since I started palliative care almost 20 years ago, that before you start in on treatment plans, that you really have to understand what your illness is, what the complications are, what the natural course or progression is, and so forth. I know that we do not like to spend, as a society, a lot of time educating people about illness. There are lots of cultural and educational gaps around this. But this is part of advanced care planning. It's part of palliative care. People need to have informed consent before they can start making choices. And so I think how this is delivered, there are a number of folks who are being really creative about it. I'm not married to doing this one way. I'm married to the idea that it needs to happen. I will tell you that at IRIS, the way that we do this, because palliative medicine is a fairly scarce resource, we unfortunately do not have near the, the market penetration of community-based palliative care programs in the United States to meet the, the type of, of need or demand that's out there. And so how can we create efficiencies for them? There's a number of ways to do that. COVID has accelerated some of these, but one way that we do this is we do the advanced care planning. We target people, certainly at least with the expectation that they're going to live two more years or more. And we go through all the advanced care planning with them. We go through that education. We pull the family members in, and I, I hope we can talk more about why to do that in, in detail here as, as the time goes on but we bring everybody to the table to go through these issues. And then by the time people need symptom management and in advance of when these crises start, the education's been done, the goals and the preferences have been ironed out, and that will make the community-based palliative care team, when we refer them to see them, much more efficient. So much of palliative care is advanced care planning. I think that's probably underappreciated if you don't practice palliative medicine. The largest study that I'm aware of around palliative care consults looked at over 70,000 patients in about 80 health systems across the country, and it was found that goals of care or advanced care planning was the reason to consult palliative care more than 70% of the time. And so if you take this resource, which is in-person palliative care, that's stretched thin and can't possibly see everybody, and take a big piece of the time-intensive element out of it by getting the advanced care planning done early so that you can focus on symptom management and some other aspects of palliative care, like social determinants of health and, and caregiver support, you're going to create significant efficiencies. And that's what we have found in our program. And I think that that's what others are experiencing as well. There are a number of other ways to help palliative care flex its muscles. And I'd be happy to talk about that, but that's one example. So Dr. Mechanic, I'd like to ask you about how we as an industry can more readily embrace palliative care and healthcare. We can deal with so many problems in the human body that are fixable. However, with regard to the two main unfixables in life, aging and dying, it often seems that we don't have an honest conversation. Instead, the medical industrial complex often inflicts therapy on terminally ill patients and actually shortens life or increases suffering before death. I even heard Z-Dog MD on one of his videos talk about how not having advanced directives requires doctors to follow hospital protocol and procedures that forces people to into torture before they die. So I, I think about this a lot in terms of how CMS is really aligning financial incentives and performance metrics around the use of palliative care and advanced care planning and value-based care models like BPCI advanced and oncology care model. Despite this though, gaps still remain in the integration of these services across providers and institutions providing care to chronically ill patients. And given the breadth and incentives for care coordination, ACOs really seem to be a powerful vehicle 
for improving palliative and serious illness care. However, there was a recent survey that came out by Levitt Partners and NACOS, and they showed that only 10% of ACOs selected palliative care as a top priority for improving efficiency and lowering costs. So what do you see as the barrier to more widespread adoption of palliative care programs by ACOs and other types of payment models? And also, as the former CEO of Ascension Health Texas ACO with 2,500 physicians, how has your ACO leadership experience informed your level of understanding for how risk-bearing entities can integrate ACP into their medical management programs. Can you also speak to that? And then we'd love to learn more about how you approach the segmentation of the population and really identify those most in need of advanced care planning as well. Let me start by saying that when it comes to the movement with the Affordable Care Act and what CMS and CMMI are doing, I applaud those efforts. I think that they have really been over the last almost decade have been laying the foundation to create a larger footprint for palliative care. I don't think that we're there yet, but we're we're making significant progress towards that. It's one reason that I went into the ACO and health plan space because I just felt like there was great potential there. And there is, and I will say that the ACOs that are able to focus on this from what I have seen in the literature as well as just uh, the experience of, of colleagues and friends across the country, it's paid off very well for them as well as for the, the, the patients and, and their families. But right now, it's not enough. I'm a big fan of many of the things that the Affordable Care Act set up, especially when it comes to data sharing and uh, rewarding physicians for outcomes rather than through volume. One of the things that I think is is missing there is a stronger sort of role and more participation from the patient. And I think that this extends beyond serious illness and palliative care, but I do think that if we want to move the needle at an accelerated pace, that legislation that comes out and programs that come out, they put physicians at risk and health plans at risk and hospitals at risk and the post-acute environment at risk, which is all good and appropriate, but there's not a lot of responsibility in those with the patient. It is like a glaring missing ingredient to me. And I, I, I do think that uh, we'll all be served better, but especially in serious illness and, and palliative efforts, if the patient had a different level of responsibility and participation in this care. I, I think that you, you probably know if you ask a group of people that are, for instance, in an MSSP program, that they're, they're members or patients in that program and say, raise your hand if you're an MSSP member, hands don't go up. They have no idea what you're talking about. And then the models that people are using for whether it's ACP or palliative care, why are some of these not flourishing the way that you would expect them to? I have a just a wonderful friend and mentor. He was the first president of Dell Computers. He's here in Austin. His name's Lee Walker. And he had been on the, the board of Livestrong and Ascension and so forth. And he has this query that he will often ask, why are these things, especially found in nonprofits or, or academic institutions that can be very successful, very impactful, why are they not scaled? Why, why do they not spread? And because of that, the way he inquires about these things, it's had me thinking the same, because as you mentioned, not enough ACOs are able to choose palliative care as something to focus on. I think there are a number of reasons. The first is the workforce shortage. We have arguably the greatest workforce shortage of any adult medical specialty in the country. We are still a relatively young field. We were not recognized officially as a, a specialty until the 2000s. The grandfathering period for palliative care didn't end until 2013, and so there's a paucity of people going into palliative medicine, and it's not, I will say, so I'm married to a plastic surgeon, and she brings delight to people, right? I am not in a field where 
that's what we're able to offer. We're not able to offer delight. We're able to offer a less difficult journey. And I think that there's something psychologically for you know medical students and residents about choosing a field like that that we don't fully understand or appreciate yet. But I think that it, it does take, just like most specialties do, takes a certain type of personality to be able to go in palliative care and to stay in it for a long period of time without getting burnt out. This is heavy stuff. And so one of the reasons that ACOs are not choosing to do something around palliative care is because they don't have the workforce. Another reason is because of educational and cultural gaps. CAPSI, arguably the most important professional organization or society that supports palliative care in the United States, the Center for Advancement of Palliative Care, they produced a marketing research at the end of 2019, so about a year ago. They had done a similar survey and study about a decade before around beliefs and understanding of palliative care, both from the patient perspective and the physician perspective. And then they divide the physicians into PCPs and specialists. And what they found is that despite these sort of educational campaigns we've been running around palliative care, that over that 10-year period, we didn't really make up much ground in terms of getting people to understand what we do. If you look at that data, what you find is my physician colleagues, both from primary care and they broke it out into some specialties like oncology and cardiology, what you find is they still have a wild misunderstanding around what we do in palliative care. I've been practicing here in Austin for a little more than eight years, have some very good friends that are ICU docs that will refer patients to me. I'm often asked by my colleagues, who are my buddies that I you know, play cards with or you know, spend time with their families, They'll say something like, hey, will you go do what you do? Because exactly what we're doing is a bit of a mystery or a black box to them. And so with those educational and and cultural gaps, this is not going to be as, as widespread as possible. And then the third reason, Eric, that I think that there aren't enough people choosing palliative care in the ACO world is that the business case and measuring success is not always a clear path for people. There are absolutely ways of doing that, but palliative medicine is a cost center. A lot of programs, depending on what the payer mix looks like and so forth, will get maybe a third of its operating costs back from collections. And so if you don't have a clear path, the ability to measure how a program like this is going to make an impact, what is the business case, then it's understandable that you may shy away from it because of that cost center concept. And I will say for anybody listening, there are just wonderful resources out there to help make that path clear. So of these three issues around workforce, culture and educational gaps, and the business case, this third one is something that has already been solved. And CAPSI and other organizations or consultants can help with that. Great answer. Thanks, Dr. Bacanek. We've been talking about how advanced care planning can transform the health system once it's more widely adopted. And we've also acknowledged that there are societal issues in the country where we refuse to accept that life is temporary. And Despite the overwhelming amount of documented benefits for patients and caregivers, the utilization of ACP and palliative care remains low. And so as we think about an example like the Conversation Project, which is an organization that provides tools, guidance, and resources for talking with patients and and family members about treatment and end-of-life wishes, it found that despite 92% of Americans saying it was important to discuss their wishes for end-of-life care, only 32% of those actually had the conversations. And and you mentioned a little bit earlier in one of your responses that the COVID-19 pandemic has underscored the benefits and importance of engaging in advanced care planning and ensuring that patients do not receive care they would not want 
if they become too severely ill to make their own decisions. Do you think we're at a tipping point? Can you expound on this idea of, of the COVID-19 influence? Are we at a tipping point for advanced care? Is it becoming more universally recognized by patients and caregivers? And, and what do you expect to see? I will say that advanced care planning, the idea of having the conversation has never been elevated in our history the way it has because of COVID. So this is an, I think, unexpected and perhaps from a societal standpoint, collateral benefit of going through a pandemic to get people to think about this. It has been in the popular press, the medical media, and the peer-reviewed journals more than ever before. And I know that at IRIS, we've seen greater engagement and participation in advanced care planning than ever before. And from what I've heard, even companies like LegalZoom, where you can do an advanced directive, have had unprecedented inquiries or, or demand for this type of thing. I think that how this is going to play out with COVID versus serious illness or a combination, you may have both, is still unknown. I do hope that for all of our sakes, that this is something that is a lesson learned in being prepared. Early on in COVID, it was a scare. And people were scared that we would have to ration care I know a little bit of that happened, but don't think that it happened on sort of the widespread scale that we were all fearful or even terrified of. And so that's one reason that people were saying, okay, I need to understand what I want to have happen to me in advance of having to go to the ED or the hospital because they may not have time to talk to me about it at that presentation, the time I present. And, and hopefully, we are out of the woods there. We don't know for sure, but, but hopefully out of the woods. I think that after those initial couple months, getting into this sort of middle phase of COVID, where it's become, unfortunately, a bit of the normal way we, we take care of people now and the way we think about healthcare, that it's on people's mind, young and old, and in the middle, healthy or not, to talk about what you want and, and what you don't want should you get COVID. I don't hear as, as much about what I want or not want around other types of treatment for diseases unrelated to COVID. I will tell you that what I have seen in the limited studies that, that have looked at this and certainly felt it more with my own patient population Patients are making those decisions for themselves right now. So I saw somebody yesterday, for instance, who has both pancreatic cancer and HIV. And he is seeing me, I'm giving him his medications for pain and other symptoms. He has not gone to get his surveillance studies for his pancreatic cancer. So that's not advanced care planning, and that's not a good idea. I, I'm trying to get him to go. But that is, in some way, the patient sort of thinking through this. Uh, I don't think we should think and act from a place of fear here, but he's also not seen his HIV doctor since almost the start of COVID. And so the way people are going to be thinking about this and how much they're going to include us as the providers in their decisions is unclear. But I think it's it's not exactly advanced care planning, but it is forethought about your care, avoidance of care that you ultimately feel like I would say is probably more unnecessary than necessary, or at least the, the burden of perhaps getting COVID when you're in these healthcare settings outweighs the benefit of what the PET scan or the blood test or your physician is going to tell you is certainly at play. And how much we're going to retain as a country around this lesson learned of it's a good idea to think about these things in advance. I worry that just in general, outside of even healthcare, we're, we're a fairly distracted people, a fairly distracted culture. So I, I do worry that the stick to of advanced care planning is not going to uh, remain at the level that it's at. But I do think that in the public mind, it will still remain more prominent than it has been in the past. 
I do think, however, that the healthcare institutions, whether you're a payer, an ACO, a large practice, a, a hospital, that they will be more mindful of the need for advanced care planning. And we've seen that in our business. I imagine our competitors have as well, just over the last few months. And I, I think that if there's going to be more of a clinging on to the idea that this is important, it'll probably be more through these healthcare organizations that have felt very exposed at their lack of preparedness around being able to have these conversations than the public will be over the long term. Yeah, I just have to think that also the cost containment opportunity is going to be another driving force for advanced care planning. I, I would love to explore the triple aim with you in the next few questions, but really start with this aspect of costs. I mean, right now we have $270 billion wasted on unnecessary care with the majority of costs going to things related to end of life. And that's outrageous, especially considering that healthcare is the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in our country. In the Medicare program, we spend about $700 billion a year total, and it's estimated that a, about a quarter of that goes to spending on the 5% of Medicare beneficiaries that are in their final year of life. So let's talk about the research for a minute. The Journal of Palliative Medicine in 2018 says that advanced care planning can reduce health costs by upwards of $9,500 per member. JAMA in 2018 says that advanced care planning with cancer patients can show a demonstrated cost savings of about $22,000 per member. There was a randomized control trial that took place over 10 and a half months that I saw that you cited in your AHIP presentation recently that advanced care planning generated about $9,842 worth of savings and had like 11 to 12 times return on investment. And then Iris did a, a survey with Millman that showed a 24% reduction in total cost of care in a period of less than six months. So as we talk about this aspect of the triple aim, reducing per capita cost of healthcare, the data shows great potential, Dr. Bacanic, for cost containment and supporting health value. And as a palliative care physician, researcher, former ACO executive and entrepreneur, what should this data be telling us about the potential for advanced care planning as a major strategy for optimizing health system performance? It's interesting. There's data for this. I, I have personal experience with it. But as physicians, when a doctor has a serious illness, they are oftentimes the least expensive patient with that kind of illness that a health plan has. Why is that? And there's a great article on this. On It's called on How Doctors Die. We are masters at avoiding that which is non-beneficial. We stay far away from things that are going to be more burdensome for ourselves than beneficial. And so with advanced care planning, and, and this leads to cost savings, it is that insider information that patients and families do not have that you can provide for them. And I, I will emphasize that I, I believe, and I, I think all of us practicing believe, this should be done in a way that is non-judgmental, that's not steering, that is always supportive. But when you put this information in the hands of patients and families, they tend to make the same types of decisions that doctors and their families make for themselves, which is if something's not going to either cure me or make my life a whole lot better, then let's not do it. You know, many studies that we do around interventions for serious illnesses look at markers that don't include how the patient is feeling. So is it important to get the heart to pump better? Absolutely. Is it important to my patient if even if their heart's pumping a little bit better, they can't make it up their stairs? Not really. Same thing with tumor size, right? If you shrink the tumor by 30%, but people still have pain or discomfort from it, or they're still going to die from it. It's not necessarily something that people are going to be interested in. If they are interested in those things, then by all means, again, you know, our job is, is to educate so people are empowered and then be supportive of, of their decisions. 
but what data shows is most people are not interested in things that are either not going to cure them or improve upon their function slash quality of life. So what we see with advanced care planning, when, when you deliver this, when you give them that insider information, they tend to make more conservative rather than aggressive decisions around their health care, leading to care that is a lot less costly. And you mentioned some studies, I will say, this can be done in a variety of ways, which some of these studies have shown, including you know, the JAMA article that was done at Stanford, and they had lay people doing this. They trained people that were not licensed healthcare professionals to have these discussions, and the cost of care, this was in cancer patients, went down dramatically. We're talking about over $20,000 per person that went through the program. And when you have a lay person doing this, that is not, you know, when we get back to the business model for palliative care and it being a cost center, having lay people go through this type of information with patients in advance of of the crisis makes it seem like a no-brainer in terms of generating more cost savings. And so I'm hopeful that we'll continue to have the types of studies that both include full-scale palliative care, because I don't think ACP is necessarily a, a replacement or a substitute for that. So ACP buried within palliative care studies, and then ACP peeled away or pulled apart from the traditional palliative care team and delivered in these novel ways where you can still see benefit. And and the reason I think that we need to have that is many, and and some of it gets back to the, the triple aim or the quadruple aim, but we don't have, you know, you mentioned Brad Smith and his organization that he founded Aspire. They've done fantastic work. But any of these in-person programs, uh, other types of community-based palliative care programs, are facing a number of obstacles around scalability. I actually, I was, I was just interviewed in an article that came out today in MedPage around prescribing opioids. You know, we have the Ryan Hate Act, which is federal legislation around not being able to prescribe opioids under most circumstances through a telehealth model, that's a big challenge for palliative care practices because a lot of what we prescribe is opioids. And so there are a number of these obstacles in terms of being able to scale that community-based palliative care program. But advanced care planning is very scalable. And that's why I'm excited about some of the studies that you talked about, because we can reach people regardless of access issues, regardless of how rural they are, or what healthcare is like in that market, or what palliative care is available in that market. We don't have to drive to anybody's house to be able to talk about this to them and their families. Dr. Buchanan, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the patient experience part of the AAA. We've seen the studies have shown that ACP improves satisfaction scores as well at, at end of life for patients and caregivers. There's a lower frequency of conflict between the two parties and patient empowerment is fostered as they receive care that's really aligned with their wishes. And your company, Iris Healthcare, and this is pretty significant, has a net promoter score of over 90. So let me set the stage for what that means for our listeners. We'll put it into perspective. If you have a net promoter score higher than 30, that indicates that your company is doing great and has far more happy customers than unhappy ones. And, and at, the, at that point, you're kind of in the Apple territory of, of net promoter scores. An NPS over 70 means your customers love you. And your company is generating a lot of positive word of mouth from their referrals. And and an NPS at 90, I mean, this is seriously in the stratosphere. So first off, congratulations on that amazing success, Dr. Buchanan. So the question is, can you share with your listeners, maybe a personal patient story seems to fit nicely in here that could exemplify how advanced care planning helps a patient, improves the patient experience for someone who has a, who's seriously ill, as well as for their family? I think that we start with, how is it introduced? Many of us have written about how language is the most important tool that we have when it comes to 
how we talk about healthcare. And it's, it's not just related to palliative care, it's to all these other specialties taking care of people with serious illness. Patients and families remember for years or decades the words that doctors use to deliver news to them. And so just as you would tell somebody about a serious diagnosis, just introducing this idea, the way in which you do it, it may be the most important part of all of this. Because what we have found, not just Iris, but palliative care at large, is that your first few words have the ability to turn someone away very quickly. If you look at that CAPSI marketing study, what you find is that the most people haven't heard of palliative care, and those that have, many of them equate it with hospice. So talking to people and bringing up the idea of, hey, let's talk about the end of your life, or let's talk about your advanced directives, let's talk about advanced care planning. We've done ourselves a disservice in the field of palliative medicine and hospice with our naming. That's a podcast unto itself. But if I say, let's go through advanced care planning, most patients are going to look at you like they have no idea what you just said. You may have well have spoken Latin or Greek. And so how to introduce this is critical. You know, if you say instead, instead of, hey, let's talk about what's important to you as your disease goes on and, and you reach the end of life, if you say instead, hey, have you ever planned for people coming over for dinner? Or have you ever planned for a trip or your kid's education or retirement? If you plan for things, then you have a better outcome. Well, let's plan for your health and the care that you want so that you have a better outcome. That's something that is a whole lot more approachable. And people can really get behind. I think that's just how we introduce this is a big part of our net promoter score because it's not done in a way that's scary or intimidating. It's done in a way that says, hey, the concept of autonomy is so important in serious illness that you are the captain of your own ship, right? One of the things that you cannot appreciate unless you've been through a serious illness is the sense that you have that, that can even be overwhelming that you've lost control. You have an illness now that is controlling your fate in essence, and that is a terrible feeling. And so anything that you can do for people that will help them feel like they have more control over their life and what's happening to them will be accompanied by gratitude. So that, that sort of language and wording, I cannot be overly emphatic on, on how important that is. The next element I would say to make this successful and, and a positive experience is to make sure that people are included. What we see with serious illness is there are all these caregivers that are surrounding people. That might be a spouse, an adult child, could be neighbors, could be people of part of your faith community, could might be hired aides that you get close to and so forth. But you've got these caregivers. And what we know is that caregivers are not impressed with the way we treat people with serious illness. They want to be much more involved. They want more time with us. They want more information from us. They want to feel like they're part of the decision-making process. And so one of the things that we do that I think is, is crucial to any ACP discussions is we make sure that we invite all those folks uh, to be part of the conversation. I will say that in practice, that is very hard. I see people in their homes, in clinic, and in the hospital for palliative care, and I get to see the patient and maybe one other person. But, but most of the care we deliver is during regular business hours, you know, eight to five, Monday to Friday. And if you have this community of people that are loved ones or caregivers for you, most of them during the day, they're at work or they live out of town or out of state. So we, our model is that we hold these conversations during the regular business day, but also evenings and weekends. So everybody hears the same information, Everybody gets to ask their questions. Everybody gets to talk about what they are hoping for, for their brother, or their sister, or their mother, or their father. And as you do that, 
something really interesting happens. You start to hear all of this misunderstanding, miscommunication, and even conflict within families. And good advanced care planning, I would argue, is helping to iron that out. A, a lot of what happens in good advanced care planning is really conflict resolution. This stuff bubbles up out of love, but people have, you've probably heard of that, that the book, uh, Crucial Conversations, where the stakes are high, feelings are strong, and feelings differ. That, that is the essence of these discussions. Feelings differ, feelings are strong, stakes are really high. And so you have these people that really care for one another. They have different motivations. Some people act out of compassion, some out of guilt, um, you know, some out of fear and, and, and so forth. And good advanced care planning helps bring the family together through conflict resolution or, or ironing out those misunderstandings. And that is powerful. And it's very unique because they don't get that anywhere else. There really is, uh, outside of, of sitting down and talking to people like this, again, which is very time intensive, this is very unusual. It's absolutely a critical factor in our promoter scores. And then on the tail end, you know, I will say that we've not done ourselves any favors with advanced directive documents. You know, if you look at all 50 states, uh, because each state has their own advanced directive, I know there are those working towards uh, a universal advanced directive that can be adopted by the country. We're, we're a ways off from that. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But all 50 states have what I would say are three major problems with their documents. They are written in legalese. They are generic, and they only talk about what happens when someone's actively dying. So if you are a physician, whether you're palliative care or any other specialty, and you hand someone the state-sanctioned advanced directive forms and say, bring these back, filled out, it's going to happen close to never because they are so hard and so intimidating to read that people really need guidance. And there are all these rules and laws that prevent this from happening, even in the clinic. I will tell you that I am unable to get executed advanced directives in my palliative care clinic in Texas. I had a patient who, very close with her, she's had metastatic breast cancer that she's been dealing with for over five years and lives about an hour and a half out of town, out, outside of Austin, brought her aunt to be her medical power of attorney who's over 80 years old in the clinic to get her advanced directive signed. And because of the, the rules and laws in Texas, we couldn't get them signed. I felt so bad. I, I went outside the building and I found someone that didn't work for the health system and was unrelated to the patient and asked if they could come into the building and would be a witness to get these documents signed because I felt so bad for her aunt that, that she was frail and fragile and made this long trip to get these documents signed. It's very intimidating. It's very difficult to get them signed. The second thing is the documents are generic. Everybody is different. Everybody's situation's different. And, and my gosh, the path down end-stage renal disease versus cirrhosis versus heart failure and so forth, those all look very different. And of course, people's choices and what they're thinking about is going to be different based on what's happening with them. And the state documents don't allow for people to express that at all. And then thirdly, the documents talk about what is happening or what you want when you're actively dying, when your heart, or your, uh, your heart stops or your breathing stops. And most people, that's not where they want to go initially with this. This talking about this stuff is, is a journey. And so we use all the state documents, but then we give them our own IRIS documents that are just plain, simple language. So it's written at a fifth grade level, super easy and straightforward, very approachable. It's specific to their illness. And it's things that they will have to face not while they're dying, but while they're living. So much more upstream, things that they'll have to 
consider and, and, and understand how they want to get through for months or years in advance of, of the dying process. I think another piece uh, besides the documentation to the net promoter score for this is that this is a longitudinal service. Whether it's iris or in practice, advanced care planning should not be a one and done conversation. People's illness, it will evolve, it will change, it will progress, and it's very dynamic. And so this needs to be like a living conversation. They need to be living documents. And so we follow people over time and look for these sort of shift points that they may experience where their thought process is different and then capture that for them. And so rather than them thinking about having to redo the documents or talk to their doctor about it and so forth again, we do all of that for them. There are other things as well, but I think that in large part, those are the elements that add up to the net promoter score. Make sense? It's perfect response. And I, I thought, Dr. Mechanic, we could wrap on the third aim of that triple aim, which is improving the health of populations. And even though advanced care planning can't reverse serious illness, it can reduce deaths in hospitals and increase hospice utilization. It can also reduce distressing symptoms of depression and pain for patients and their caregivers. And I, I want to focus on this aspect of mental health for a moment. Dealing with the serious illness coupled with the need to socially isolate for the sake of public health during the pandemic, it clearly has a negative impact on mental health of the population. And I can imagine this is a major challenge for you in dealing with this at, at this moment as a palliative care physician. Have you seen that telehealth enablement of advanced care planning through facilitation of virtualized interactions between family members and patients can actually improve relationships and, and really uh, also improve their mental health during an already challenging time? Absolutely. I think that all of us are in some way or form lonely. I live with my wife, our three kids, and a bunch of pets. And there are plenty of times during the week uh, that I feel lonely. There are lots of people in my life that I miss and so forth. And I just can't imagine what it's like to have a serious illness and live alone in this time. One of my absolute favorite telehealth advanced care planning sessions was with a 99-year-old who was in Chicago and has five kids. I had three sessions with them initially, and they were all on Sunday night. So the kids lived in different time zones. All five lived out of state. One, one of them lived out of the country. And at the end of the three sessions, this 99-year-old said, you know, I have a request. And I said, fire. And she said, can you just leave, meaning my, my office at, at home, because I was in my office at home, and, and keep this video on so that we can have a family reunion? You know, there were some difficult discussions we had over those three sessions because her kids felt differently than she did about what type of care was going to happen for her. But at the end, it was such a good feeling that a lot of those miscommunications or, or conflicts had resolution or, or closure that everybody just wanted to visit with one another. And my feeling is that this is something that if you allow it, will bring you closer to people. And it gives, you know, we have people who don't have family members join because they don't have family or they don't want their family for some reason to be part of this, that are, are just happy to be able to talk to somebody. We're actually looking at ways that we can create some anti-loneliness programs or interventions, if you will, because of the severe impact COVID has had on this. But I, I do think that people are looking for any reason to connect now with people that they know and love, but also with strangers. I think we could all use more of that. And if it's through advanced care planning, or anything else aimed at trying to improve their health, that's probably a worthy effort. Well, Dr. Stephen Mechanic, thank you so much for joining us today in this Race to Value. We really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for taking time for us. Stay safe. Really appreciate this and felt like, I don't know if it's the, the three of you or, or how you do it, but 
y'all did just fantastic research. I mean, I, I've done a bunch of these and your level of preparedness and just sort of, you know, understanding of, of the material in advance of talking about it. I was sitting there, I was like, wow, this is really impressive. Uh, you guys sound like like you're in palliative care. So really, really cool and surprising. You brought delight to me today. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it, it's such a pleasure to hear that and, and to, to get that compliment. And yeah, and it was so great to talk to you today, Stephen. 